Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. This week, Bruce talks with Jasmine Martirazian, Vice President of Marketing at Tube Sud Americas. Jasmine shares her strategy for joining a new team, why success usually begets success, how crossword puzzles relate to good project management, and how her experiences as a leader in an international organization have been sources of both vulnerability and strength. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today I have Jasmine Martirassian. Uh, she is Vice President of Marketing at Tufzud Americas. Globally, they do more than $3 billion in annual revenue. So if you've never heard of them, look into it. Jasmine, by the way, just so you know, she's got a PhD in law, policy, and society. Uh, so Jasmine, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. Delighted to be on your podcast. And you know, I'm a huge fan of your work and your writing, so... Well, that's very kind of you, and uh, I'm thrilled to have you on. And so, just uh, uh, for those who don't uh, know you and 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 your background, executive summary: How'd you get to where you are? Ah, uh, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, by being open to the changing tides of the universe, because even the work, the jobs I've held over the past 15 years, they did not exist when I was graduating from university. And being open to how the world is evolving and changing and also taking kind of a different perspective. Even my PhD is interdisciplinary. You said law, policy, and society. So taking a more interdisciplinary approach, breaking down silos and walls will get people farther than just you know, having the tunnel vision and being in one place at a time. Now, I'd be completely honest, if somebody had said, oh, you know, you'll end up doing, say, digital marketing and revenue marketing, phrases that did not even exist 15, 20 years ago, I would not have known that. But being open to opportunities when they present themselves uh, is really important. So it's one thing to have a plan, but it's also as much important today to know when to stray away, away from a plan, what you might have thought for yourself. Yeah. And, and so law policy and uh, society, uh, I had a guest on uh, several episodes back, Austin Serrett. Maybe you've heard of him. He's got that kind of interdisciplinary approach. But for those who uh, are not scholars, can you explain like, what does that mean, an interdisciplinary approach to law, policy and society? What, what is that? Now, that's a really good question. Actually, up until the 19th century, uh, we did not have such a huge division into disciplines, right? This disciplinary kind of tunnel vision siloing of different disciplines is a relatively new thing. No wonder then everybody gets a PhD, which is a doctor of philosophy degree. Until the 19th century, everything was viewed as part of philosophy and science, uh, and then the division occurred, which had its benefits, but at the same time, when you do not look at it from a cross-channel, cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary perspective, you miss out a lot of things. We have a tendency to want to explain everything away easily. You know, if so there's a terrible occurrence, uh, be it globally or in local news, usually they'll, the journalists will be standing out there asking somebody to give like a one-word, one-sentence explanation where that's one reason. And that's so much much 
easier for people to process, but the reality is always way more complex. So being able to then sift through the complexity and land on what really matters makes a huge difference. But again, it's usually not just one thing. And then if you're looking at things from perspective of one thing, you might inevitably miss out lots of other important factors. When it comes to policy, if you look at some of the biggest policy disasters, some of them including, say, the Columbia catastrophe, Challenger disaster, they all occurred because there was data that presented itself, but it was discounted because it did not fit the paradigm of a singular approach, of a singular discipline. So it's really important to look outside and factor in things. And a lot of decision makers, quite frankly, that's where a lot of good uh, leaders uh, you know, fall on their swords. Once they have decided something, they become very reluctant to decide away from it, even when new facts present themselves. So having that openness goes a long way. So being able to look at things from multiple different perspectives, from through the lens of multiple different disciplines, uh, various analytic frameworks. With your degree, you might expect, uh, or someone might expect you'd be teaching political science somewhere or something, but what drew you into marketing? You know what I used to teach, actually, up until 2001, I taught at Northeastern University a whole host of courses from, uh, you know, sociology of the family, social psychology, my personal favorite, sociology of business uh, and other courses. But I'm a very, academia moves at a slower pace. And then uh, you're constantly dependent on grants and uh I always had the attraction more towards doing, even my PhD is applied, which means it has to do with doing. Policy is all about doing and making things happen. So I moved towards marketing, starting in it uh, initially through public relations and market research, and then evolving into digital revenue, agile marketing, which are, again, when I got into marketing, those disciplines did not even exist in that sense. And how does your uh, scholarly training and your experience as a teacher, how does that connect up with marketing? I mean, I was thinking kind of, you know, marketing at its best looks something like teaching, I guess, right? But, but, but maybe I'm just overcomplicating it. No, you're not. But I mean, that's a great question. Think of it as your audience. You know, uh, if you're standing in a classroom and lecturing and interacting with your audience, you kind of get immediate feedback. Are they engaged? Are they not engaged? That's really no different than marketing. Ultimately, fundamentally, we're all selling. So whether we're selling ideas in a classroom or we're selling ideas in a corporate boardroom, it's a form of selling. And don't look at it as like a four-letter word. Look at it as a way to, again, engage the audience, promote some goodness that you believe in. Now, it's also about mission and empathy marketing, right? Again, new words that did not exist even 15, 20 years ago. You have to engage with your audience in a way that makes sense to them. And it has to be less about you and more about them. I mean, the old-fashioned marketing, we do this, is really outdated, which most people still do that. You have to see what benefit it is that you're bringing to your customers. Be truly customer-centric. Yeah, and 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 you've had a number of different roles. Uh, you were at uh, uh, TTA, the Training Associates, one of my favorite uh, companies, and now you're at uh, uh, Tuvzud. Can you explain for those who don't know about Tuvzud what Tuvzud is? 
TubeSuit is one of the world's uh, most leading players in the so-called TIC, testing, inspection, and certification industry. So in effect, everything from what we consume as food to the clothing we wear to the hair dryers and major appliances we use to the cars we drive to medical technology has to be tested and certified and verified for entry into different markets. And TubeSuit is one of the leading organizations that does this with absolute integrity and leadership in, in that. So I'm very proud to be part of TubeSuit. Yeah. And what, so what does that testing look like? Just so people can understand, because it's a big company, right? You're a $3 billion a year company. It's a huge company. And we have about a thousand locations all over the world. And that looks like it could be uh, an autonomous vehicle test. We work with some leading uh, car manufacturers in the United States now. And some of those tests are really confidential for them because they're, they're showcasing their new technology and we have to honor that and not share that with anybody else. Or it could be uh, medical technology, complex machinery like MRIs, things that people take for granted today. It's also looking at how those technologies now interact through cybersecurity. None of us wants to think about it, but cybersecurity is a huge factor. In fact, you can theoretically, I know it sounds dystopian, but somebody could hack into somebody's device that's implanted to restart their heart and kill them. Theoretically, I'm getting carried away here, but it's not crazy. But just so people understand, so do you have mostly quality engineers, and that's that's who uh, we have lots of quality engineers. We have lots of testing engineers. We have all sorts of you know engineering talent that you know works on those, and there are global standards, right? We do not come out with those out of thin air. So there are a host of organizations that develop international standards like ASTM, for instance, uh, American Society of Testing Materials. And whatever we do has to meet the minimum requirements of those standards. We also certify to ISO, like 9001, 14001 for environment. So anything that has to do with the universe of third-party validation, verification, certification, auditing, testing, we are, you know, one of the leading organizations working with that. But it seems like like uh, everyone has to come through you. Uh, so w when you're marketing, like what, what does that look like to market those testing services? Oh, that's a really good question. So we, uh, while I said we're one of the leaders and a lot of the time clients have to do it because it's a regulatory requirement, you want to be the provider that they want to do it and the partner, uh, you know, of trust the provider of service that they actually want to do business with rather than they have to do business with. So you want to be that well of knowledge and expertise and also how you handle the customer requests and situations that goes a long way because people today have choices. And the internet, everything digital has completely revolutionized how people transact, be it B2C to B2B. In essence, today, all marketing is B2P, business to person. It's not as if, you know, uh, there is tolerance in the marketplace now to say, oh, this is a B2B business, so it has to be a boring experience. It has to be an unpleasant experience. No, that's not the case. I mean, people take the experiences they have with the Amazons, Ebays, Expedias of the world, because they are the decision makers, and then they translate it, they transfer it onto all the other B2B uh, experiences and expect the kind of, you know, rapid response, kind of friendly engagement, a solid uh, immersive experience that they would have. And I think we, our industry has to innovate and revolutionize and be there for the customers that way. And, and so what does your team look like? And what is the organization? So, so I know $3 billion. 
I mean, how many people are involved in this outfit? Well, our organization has about over 25,000 employees in over a thousand locations. Uh, we're very efficient. We're very collaborative. We, it's actually, I'm very proud of Tubzud in that you really have a culture with nice people. It's not the type of place where people, you know, throw others under the bus, but we're also kind of innovating, right? Since its founding in 1866, we would like to think of ourselves as a, you know, mature startup. <laughs> well, that's very mature. I mean, golly, that's uh, uh, 155 years old. Exactly. And and how many companies can say that, right? Um, a lot of the companies do not survive past their 30th birthday. And to be 155 and to stay current and to stay relevant is really an important undertaking. And how? And you've been there for how long? I've been there for now three years. Yeah, time flies. It seems like I joined yesterday. And it's peculiar, right? Because it's been such a strange couple of years. I'm so glad that I got my start there before COVID hit, because then I got to meet all the key players, though, I mean, we have been growing and expanding as well. And lots of new people have joined even during the pandemic, but it's good to have built the bridges and to stay connected. Uh, But we're also restarting being kind of active in meetings and office. I just came back from a week in San Diego, meeting with our leadership team and was a fantastic experience, you know, meeting everybody in person. There is magic that comes out in in in-person settings rather than just looking at one another through a Teams or, I don't know, Zoom. Yeah. And so, so uh, but, but okay, so you're uh, far enough along in your career that here you are three years ago. What's your strategy for joining a new team and making the connections and showing people kind of what you can do and building relationships? Uh, how do you go about doing that? You know, I mean, even though I appear to be in marketing, fundamentally, if you were to look at the arc of my career, I've been in change management. And then marketing today is also selling and e-commerce. So it's not that separated at all. Uh, You have to, A, you have to be authentic and you have to be curious. You have to make an effort. You have to apply yourself, especially if you're in a leadership role. But I want to be clear to the audience. You don't have to wait to have a title to, to exercise leadership and influence people. You know, no matter what your role is, step up, be the best you can be. And that makes a world of difference. And when you're authentic and you apply yourself, people do take notice. But if you're going to just like clock the, I don't know, standard nine to five, whatever that is, and just do the bare minimum, that's also going to be noticed. So invest yourself in a way that people say, okay, this person is really caring about this and this means a lot to them. I'm not saying don't have a lot of uh, outside interests in your personal life. That's not that's not the thing. You should absolutely have that and be a multifaceted person. But again, be 100%, 120% present wherever you are in whatever you do, be it as a parent, be it as a, a professional. So that's super important. A lot of the time that gets lost in the shuffle. You're going to meet people and also how how you communicate things to them. I mean, when I said change management, it can be very threatening to others to deal with change. So find niches where you can build success and then scale those up, right? Because once you're working from success, success usually begets success. 
I mean, I've been in situations in the past where I've learned where I'll, I'll go and make a major presentation saying we'll do X, Y, and Z. And you can see the audience shrinking away because it's scary. They haven't seen that happen. They'll say it cannot be done. And then two years down the line, it's all done. But knowing how to serve that up and build engagement really goes a long way. It's also about communication and building the buy-in, right? You can have great ideas, but if you can't build the buy-in, reach the people in the way that's relatable to them, it's not going to happen. Yeah. How do you, so, so, okay, you come in, do you ever find people find you threatening? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure some will find it intimidating. You come in new, right? You're coming in from the outside. They're like, oh, here's Jasmine, you know, doctor, you know, and all of a sudden, like maybe you come in, you're their new boss or their boss's boss or their boss's boss's boss. Like, how do you maintain your authority or establish your authority, but do that without being intimidating. Do, how do you how do you draw people in and and sh- and show them that it's in their best interests to connect with you, that you have their best interests at, at heart? Well, uh, I try several things. This was a multifaceted question, so I'll give you a multifaceted answer. Number one, I do intentionally downplay the whole doctor part because that's. That helps me, but it's not meant to be a weapon to be exercised over others. And frankly, if you have to wield influence through a title, that's a non-starter to begin with. Uh, And you definitely don't try to be intimidating, but again, it goes back to communication. I mean, it's possible that some of the ideas you put forward are intimidating, but that's where you as a leader, A, have to provide guidance be managed in chunks that are relatable and doable. I remember a few years ago, I was in Amsterdam. We were launching like major global projects with actually one of our competitors. And we had started with the biggest projects, which was France and UK, and those were complicated and difficult. And then the second phase was the kind of smaller scale projects for uh, the Netherlands and Italy. And I remember that being much easier. And then over the weekend in Amsterdam, I went to the Rijks Museum where there are a lot of Peter Paul Rubens paintings, you know, the gigantic major paintings he did. And quietly to the side, there was a room where it showed how he first did all those paintings on tiny, small scale. So you usually associate Rubens with those gigantic paintings. You don't see the background work he did and how he started the big stuff with small. That, to me, was such a great connection to change management. Start small. Yeah, and how do you bring people along on that journey with you? You have to, again, find what their self-interest is. You have to see what resonates with them. You know, I'm a huge believer in Gallup Strength Finder, uh, Clifton Strength Finder, uh, and one of my top five strengths is individualization. What that means is that while I will be respectful to everyone, I communicate differently with different people. It means it's meeting them where they are, trying to understand what is it that motivates them, trying to understand what is it that will drive them. So you have to meet people where they are and structure the benefits so they they work from the benefits. And when I said start small, I did not mean to say stay small. You start small and then scale up. You're already working from success. A lot of change management projects fail because the leader will come in, whoever, whatever is the leader's title. It could be VP, EVP, COO, CEO, doesn't matter. 
the leader of an area starts and they want to do this big, huge thing. And then that kind of never materializes or it becomes so intimidating, it never happens. I don't know if you've been to Toronto, Canada. You know, that their subway system is like two lines. One is U-shaped, goes north-south. One is like uh, a, pretty much a straight line, goes east-west. And what's, what amazes me about Canada is that... Um, and, you know, I'm Canadian, too. I've lived in Toronto for many years. Every year, there is a debate about extending the subway infrastructure. And what's amazing is every year, the number that's needed to do it so perfectly well balloons to billions and billions of dollars. So it's a non-starter. But if they had decided, you know, it's a metric system in Canada, so to build a kilometer of subway tunnels a year, in 20 years, it would be 20 kilometers it would go a huge distance, right? So it would be way well over 10, 12 miles. Kind of doesn't happen because they, they think of it as too big. The same is true of people in their personal lives, right? They, they dream of things, but they do not action because they do not know from which point to get started and they do not know how to even make it happen. Well, you got to start somewhere and, and make it in small pieces, I mean, uh, over the weekend, I was on a flight from California to Boston, and I got doing a crossword puzzle. I was on a United flight. There was a magazine, Hemisphere, suddenly when it said it was some kind of microbiologically, whatever, purified, clarified. And I, I did the crossword puzzle. It was so reflect, you know, refreshing. It's very much like that. You have to have a vision. You have to break it down. A crossword puzzle is a recipe for success in major project management. You have to identify where your easy wins are. You have to then structure based on that. You have to find solutions to answers you don't even know the answers to at that point. But to get kind of frozen in time and not get started, you're never going to do a crossword puzzle or a major project or anything for that matter, right? Because the barriers will come up. So it's a frame of thinking, a mindset. Do you move ahead and cross every bridge that it comes, or do you just get so overwhelmed by it that you're not even taking a single step? It sounds like you have some experience in in, in overcoming uh, uh, obstacles like that. Is that, or or do you just uh, know that instinctively? Ha, ha, have you uh, have you had those experiences? I think, well, my entire life has been that. At one point, I was commuting between uh, Toronto and Boston for six years. That's a huge thing. If somebody told you to do it, there are so many reasons to think about why not to do it and how that's not a good idea. Yet I met six other people who did the same. I met three other people who did the opposite. But it's beside the point. The point is, if you decide to do something, you will make it happen because then you'll be able to kind of parse out the steps. You'll be able to break it down. It's kind of like writing a book. You've written, what, 20 some books? I have. The whole thought of a singular book is very intimidating. But if you think of it as chapters, if you think of it as chunks of text, if you subdivide it, suddenly it comes together like magic. Well, you make it sound uh, you you make it sound like every big project can just be taken apart and done in bite-sized chunks. Uh, I guess that's the only way to do a big project. Is there any other way? I don't think so. And it's funny because, you know, when you're in the midst of a big project, it's so easy to forget that and to become daunted by the gravity of, of what you're trying to do. And uh, I think it's such a, an important thing, no matter how far along you get in, in your life and career, it's so important to remember that. 
that's frankly the only way. And also, no matter how smart, intelligent, educated a person is, you can't think of everything that will come up as a barrier, right? But then you're usually so much better equipped to resolve those as they present themselves. Whereas the other option is of arrested development, you you kind of get paralyzed and you're not moving anywhere and you're thinking it's all intimidating and then nothing gets done. And, you know, time has one consistent quality, it passes. So you're better off being left with an accomplishment than not. Yeah, the time's going to go by one way or the other, right? <laughs> no question about that. It flies away. Uh, well, we're with Jasmine uh, Martirosian. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back. Hi, my name is Chris DeFirio, and I run a coffee podcast called Keys to the Shop. But it's not just a podcast to give insights, inspiration, and tools for success to coffee shop owners and operators, but it's a place where we discuss concepts, best practices, and topics that apply widely to the world of small business. So not only do we bring in coffee experts to talk with us on the show, but we bring in outside coffee industry experts, like for instance, our friend Bruce Tulgan, whose work I constantly recommend to my listeners and clients and has been a frequent guest on our show. So whether you're drinking uh, coffee, tea, or whatever, you can follow us on Instagram at keys to the shop. And of course, find out more over at our website, keys to the shop.com. I hope you give keys to the shop a listen and that what you hear there will help you in your professional development and, of course, give you keys to the shop. We're back with Dr. Jasmine Martirassian, Vice President of Marketing at Tuvsud Americas. Uh, so, 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 you know, you, you've been around the block a few times. You've been around, around the world a few times. Uh, you, you're in a global leadership role. What are the special challenges and the special pleasures of, of having to work and lead all over the world? Actually, one of the key attractions when Tuvzud approached me um, from when I was at TTA, and, you know, I, I love TTA. It's a fantastic organization. Uh, it was a very difficult decision, but one thing that made it easy was how global Tuvzud is. And I love that global orientation. And once you get used to it, working across so many cultures, it's a very attractive proposition because it helps you grow. It helps you build friendships. It helps you kind of expand your horizons and very often step outside of your comfort zone. And it also puts you in positions of, frankly, vulnerability all of which then help you grow. It doesn't let you become complacent. It doesn't let you fall onto the same old, same old. And I always tell people travel makes me a better person. Being part of a global organization, that's a huge, huge, huge factor and benefit. How, how is it that uh, being abroad is a source of vulnerability? And how is it that being abroad is such a source of strength? That's a great question. Uh, and I think there was a compliment built in there somehow. And I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> I will. Uh, so when I travel, historically, I've always added the weekends and I do not mind paying out of my pocket uh, for the extra hotel nights and the organization benefits because then it goes from business airfare to uh, travel. I also will put my so not only do you meet the colleagues in different cultures and you have to connect to them in a way that makes perfect sense that can kind of promote the agenda that you want that can build bridges, which is just so important in a global organization. But you can also really expand your horizons. I'm a very 
interested person. I'm very interested in other cultures, and those are genuine interests. So in doing that, you you put yourself in situations that make you sometimes insanely vulnerable. So if I remember the first time I was in China, I wanted to go to Beijing. Our organization was really worried about me because they thought I, they something would happen to me. They were kind of inwardly also very proud of me that I was so interested in everything Chinese. And uh, they, but they tried to kind of not lose me. They even, the VP there even said how she was afraid that they might just actually, something might happen to me. And China is a very safe country, I should add, right? Uh, and they would intensely take me to like dinners that lasted till 9 p.m. And then they would c- bring me back to the hotel, but I would go long enough into the lobby and then turn around, get into a taxi and go and explore something else. Uh, Because I had this intense curiosity. Anytime I go to a place, I think, oh, I'm going to treat it as the last time I'm going to see it. So I push my own barriers. Uh, When I was in Iceland over the summer, uh, because days are long, I probably got two weeks of time out of the one week there because I exploited the open, the, the, the white nights they have. But all of that, when you do it, ends up putting you into some insane circumstances. So I remember being in China right before the Olympics, which meant they were super strict with, they did not want any security incident. And we get into this airplane and we sit there for over three hours and the plane does not take off. We deplane, now we have to rebook, I'm alone, I speak no Chinese. Somehow you have no idea what was happening, uh, but I was able to befriend a man who told me that the plane would be deplaning shortly because all the announcements were in Chinese only. So I was able to get myself to the front of the plane where my original seat was. I, I knew enough to hurl myself to the counter to be rebooked somehow. And as this was happening, I heard all Chinese, I heard American English. And we, when you hear American English in China, it's like you found a long lost family member. And there was this woman asking if I could help her rebook her ticket as well from afar. And I said, yes, please, I'd love to. So she sent the passport. And at this point, you don't know, there's like a 20 deep line pressing on you from all directions. And as I did this for her, I started, this is past midnight. I yelled out, out to her and I said, hey, uh, so do you have a hotel booked? And she's like, no, I live in Shanghai, so you're welcome to stay with me. She turned out to be a lead designer for Adidas, and she had been designing also um, the Olympic uh, clothing for U.S. uh, Olympic team. And it was this unbelievable vulnerability that turned into some very tremendous experience. And I ended up being in the French Quarter in Shanghai, which is interesting. It was like it was meant to be because French Quarter is like the historic part, which really beautiful homes. And throughout my stay there, I'd be wondering, I wonder how people live here and what it's like. And she had a chauffeur. And then the next morning, her chauffeur took us to the airport. It was this unbelievable experience being put both in harm's way and being rescued and makes you very grateful. And uh, you help others and people help you. So it's phenomenal. Now, is that something that you learned at a certain point in your life? Or is that just your personality? Or uh, because it seems like that uh, is not how everyone conducts themselves. Yeah, I mean, I I do not uh, organize kind of uh, trips. One experience, an interesting one, uh, we were in 
Greece in Olympia, which is where the original Olympic Games took place. And we had to be in Delphi the next day. This is all without any tour groups, except there was a little uh, challenge where even all the locals said you cannot both see Olympia and then make it to Delphi. Like it was not logistically doable. I asked everybody for their opinion and somehow put together a plan, which was, if you think about it, was a pretty kind of... uh, audacious plan, but it involved asking the bus driver to actually speed up to make it make us make to the connection ultimately after taking a train. And he somehow helped and did it. I mean, these are the people that out of nowhere, they're my heroes, that they will go a long way to help a human being. And that makes you more open-minded to also help others and think completely outside the box. So not be kind of very dogmatic about anything. You just want to help people. You want to help people succeed. It, it's not a stretch to then bring that kind of helpfulness to the corporate environment. And the equivalent of speeding up safely, right? What can we speed up nicely in the process? Tell us about your team right now. Like, what, what does your team look like? How do you approach uh, leading? Is, is your team dispersed all over or...? Our team is dispersed all over. Um, roughly about two, three weeks ago now, I was able to collect them all in one location in the Boston area, and we had a phenomenal time, which was amazing. And lots of people had joined during the pandemic, but people came from all over, all parts of U.S., Canada, Mexico. And it was really nice to bring people together and break bread. There was something very healing about breaking bread together to build culture, to build that human relationship, to come up with adventures. And we built in some team building exercises. One evening, we went to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Another evening, we went apple picking before dinner. Our keynote speaker was one of the best uh, business innovators and legend and icon, Hap Klopp, who founded the North Face he came and it was a huge privilege to, again, hear the lessons from him, create kind of that culture around which people can have share common stories and coalesce, right? So to me, having Hap Club there sharing his stories then creates a foundation for our team to share their stories. We had our VP of HR, who is a, a Jobina Gonzalez, who is a Clifton Strength certified coach, common lead this session looking at everybody's strengths. And now that, again, gives people a common culture to reference. I do not micromanage, but I'm kind of also always very informed. But the leaders who micromanage, they're missing the point. Why are you paying everybody else to do their job if you're doing everybody's job, right? Uh, It's a control freakish thing that does not empower people and you're not getting the benefit of your people. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. How do you, how would you define, cause I always talk about micromanagement, like that usually micromanagement is under management in disguise, right? Because if you're micromanaging, you're not really managing, you're just sort of looking over somebody's shoulder saying, do this, do that. So how, how do you, what's your understanding? How would you uh, distinguish between managing and micromanaging? No, that's a really, you, I, I actually would agree with your definition because it's lack of true leadership and management. And it, it's also a, a kind of an imbalance and a sense of insecurity that a person has, and also a lack of trust that they extend towards the other person. Obviously, they're not trusting it. Now, will somebody, everybody, anybody do it exactly the way you wanted it to happen? No. 
But I had a manager who ages ago told me that as a team leader, you have to learn to accept things at 80%. And there is tremendous wisdom to that. And then you don't aim for perfection, you aim for done and driving this iterative, continuous improvements and empowering people to see that way. You have to be there to always provide guidance as needed. I have an open door policy, which nowadays extends to open text, open, I don't know, uh, (laughs) Teams policy. Uh, But at the same time, you have to be clear about the guidance you're providing. And when you provide the guidance, always lead with why, right? Why this means. And try to understand, did they get it? Do you know the why behind this? Because as any parent knows, because I said so just doesn't go anywhere. Uh, because I said so, yeah. And it's especially tough with, I mean, I mean, maybe for somebody up to the age of nine or 10, but uh, uh, even then it doesn't work that well. It really doesn't. And then all you end up gaining is loss of trust from the other side and kind of disdain. Uh, be, be, because again, it starts with fundamental distrust of the other person and fundamental disrespect. Uh, And I think we owe it to ourselves and to others to always articulate the why behind something. And if people know why something is being done, they will definitely do it. If something doesn't make sense, they're not going to do it, right? So, or they will actually sabotage and jeopardize things. People have a very subtle way of doing sabotage work that doesn't register with managers necessarily. So you said there's 25,000 people uh, in the organization. How many are you responsible for? Um, I'm the under 30. Oh, that's that's plenty though. And ha- and you have like, do you have uh, chief lieutenants whom you uh, trust the most, or do you have all 30 of them like trying to get your attention? Well, you can't. Uh, we're a pretty flat organization, but there is structure still. But you can't show favoritism per se. Everybody has to feel included. Uh, inevitably, you lean on some more than others, but that's the nature of life. I mean, do you like? Do you have a chain of command? There is a chain of command. Yeah, and uh, when we started here, because it was a new centralization effort at Tivzud, initially I had way too many direct reports. So we have streamlined that. So now it's a more logical setup. But you know what? There is a time to everything. That huge number of direct reports was needed because, frankly, I too was learning the business and the setup of what was happening here. So that was very relevant. So you have to be open to evolving your own team as well. And now our team has expanded to have inside sales and uh, sales analytics, sales enablement under it. So that means a lot, uh, which means, again, you have to be agile and evolve and meet the needs of the business in a way that makes sense in that moment. Because and you have to be like honest with yourself and evolve further, right? Like I'm very comfortable saying, you know what, I recommended this. We be it a tool, be it a strategy, be it an approach or a tactic. This worked at this point in time. But now that we have evolved to Y from X, we have to move to this other thing. And that to me actually does take courage. A lot of people get so stuck on what they decided and they do not want to move away from it because their ego is part of it. And you can't have your ego in it. You have to be above your ego. Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you navigate that? Like you've got 30 people on your team, you're reporting to the CEO. Are you working uh, on site or are you working remotely? Uh, We have started being on site. So like all of last week, we were on site at a California location. And that was for for this breaking of bread. Yeah, among other, that was for for my, 
you know, every leader is on two teams, right? You're on the leadership team and then you have your own team. And, you know, there is the five dysfunctions of the team that, uh, what is it, Patrick Lencioni wrote. People forget that like your number one team is the team with your peers and the person you report to. That's really important because if we don't all gel together and deliver what's the strategy for the organization, you can be amazing with your own team. It's not going to serve the higher purpose. Yeah. And not only that, but but if you're like persona non grata on the, on the executive team, it's very hard to support your team in the organization, right? So yeah, I always say the first person you got to manage every day is yourself. The second person you got to manage every day is your boss. Then it's like then the people on your team and then everybody else. But so how do you do that? How do you navigate all those relationships? Do you have like a relationship strategy? Well, that's a good question. I had a boss, Grant Carter, uh, who was one of our competitors, who had a famous saying. He, He would say, no surprises. He And there is a lot of wisdom in the no surprises mantra in that if you are to like if there is a problem, I'd rather hear about the problem first. Then uh, anybody try to sweep that problem under the rug. And then, you know, I'm still going to find out as the leader of that team. Then then where do you go from there? Then more energy has been expanded in the wrong wrong way, not not a fun idea. So but if you're you're open about challenges, you can also resolve them together. So I'm very, very open. If if there is a challenge coming up, I'm going to make sure that our CEO knows about it. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug. And I'm sure that helps also build a sense of trust. Because whether it's good or bad, I'm going to share that and not pretend like it did not occur. It's also being, you know, knowing how the person likes to communicate and being connected to them and not just avoiding responsibility. So I think you have to stand up and deliver. Right. So you, you need them, uh, you need to be able to deliver for, for, for your people and they need to be able to deliver for you. Do you ever run into cross-functional uh, friction. I mean, of course, on the executive team. So you 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 run marketing, and you said inside sales and e-commerce. Yeah, that's a lot, right? And so if you're the one, but if you're doing marketing and sales, right, it's tempting to be like, what we want to do is bring the price down and promise the world. Well, I'm the last person that is going to ever argue about bringing the price down. If you're so focused on price, it means you're not delivering on value for your organization. And it means you're really going to miss the point. In fact, I, I will go on the record here saying I'm officially opposed to any, you know, coupon deals or price reductions or that's not going to happen on my watch. I can see when you have a multi-million dollar relationship with a special client, they get some kind of special setup. That's different. Uh, you're never going to become the Macy's or worse, the JCPenney. If you know the corporate story of JCPenney and when the former head of Apple stores became their CEO and stopped the couponing and discounts, you know what happened to JCPenney, I think. I do. And I did a lot of work for JCPenney back when they were still JCPenney. <laughs> you know, and I mean, when, when things were still going well. You you can't walk away. Once people get used to the discounts and couponing, that's not going to happen. I mean, for instance, Macy's. Macy's routinely has, I don't know, all sorts of discounts. So if I'm interested in buying something from Macy's, what do you think I'm going to do? Buy it right away? No, I'm going to wait till the, the offer comes up. Once people get used to it, you're not walking away. And it means if you're doing that kind of discounting, you're not articulating the value of your service. 
But but there must be some. I, the, the only reason I mention that is I know that at an executive level, you know, the different uh, functions in the organization often have competing priorities and interests. And sometimes that can be a source of friction at the executive level. And one of the things I've learned about somebody like, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, if I read you correctly, you know, you have to be good at navigating those competing priorities and interests and good at managing your colleagues. Or is there never any friction at the executive table? Well, you have to, well, there, if there's no friction, it means nobody is ever thinking, right? So our CEO likes talking about healthy conflict. But it, it's all about being focused on the issue and the matter and negotiating a way at it. Uh, call it horse trading or coming to a common foundation. You need to be able to speak with your peers. The only thing you cannot do is hide away in a corner and think that the issue is going to go away. And then now you've lost face and you've lost value. That helps nobody or nothing. But to come with the solution and to name the, the issue, the challenge, and say, let's work together to accomplish X, Y, and Z, most people are usually willing to meet you halfway at least. And that's a very, very important proposition. I mean, people will help you if they see that you're genuine and you're trying to help them. I mean, sometimes we project onto people what we believe them to be. And I do find it's much easier to live life if you approach it with trust and if you approach it with expecting the best out of people. Most of the time, you get you actually get that back. What happens at the, like, maybe it's too secret, but at the executive table, when there is that friction, like, you know, some people are good at handling it. Some people aren't good at handling it. You hash it out and you do not personalize it. You don't make it up. It's like it's like in married relationships, right? Uh, for instance, when my husband and I, we've been married a long time, thankfully, right? Value, love each other tremendously. Doesn't mean we do not disagree on issues. But when we disagree, it's about the issue. It's not about the person. And that's a huge weakness that a lot of people, they have a hard time separating the issue from the person. And learning to do that. And sometimes you even have to say, look, I love you dearly. I really appreciate X, Y, and Z that you do. But can we on this one look from a different perspective and tackle it differently? And you know what? Most, most of the time people will agree with, to do that. Because then they see you're authentic, they see you care, they see you respect them. They'll meet you halfway. It's not about just putting up barriers and uh, because ultimately everybody wants to succeed. I have never met a person that kind of explicitly wants to fail. It's the paths that we take to success that make a difference that frankly make some of us indispensable or not. And also don't feel entitled. Like I never feel entitled in anything I do because you, you always have to keep that freshness uh, because that keeps you more excited, that keeps you searching for things, that keeps you curious that kind of brings that humble factor in and uh, brings humility and humanizes you ultimately more rather than just feeling entitled. So I've seen that so often, though, at an executive table where whatever, it's the head of manufacturing and the head of engineering, and they, you know, they, they're just constantly clashing. And that causes problems that reverberate through the whole organization. But when you think about it, if they step back and they look at it, they probably have the same objective. It's just how do they map out the path to that objective together, right? It sh the, the world is big enough. Uh, when Hap Klopp was visiting, he said, uh, well, how, he formulated it really well. He said, people 
are pie dividers and pie growers. If you come from the scarcity perspective and think that there is a finite pie that you have to cut, okay, then you're in the scarcity world and you're going to have unhealthy competition. But if you're a pie grower, which is really true in the world of knowledge, uh, you know, knowledge economy, if we exchange our ideas, if we help one another, we're going to actually end up farther away than not. And that makes a difference. So again, it's mindset, it's perspective, and really it's just sometimes plainly articulating it clearly enough, right? Don't consider it beneath yourself to kind of make a case for it. This is all super valuable advice for anyone who's listening. You know, people are thinking like, well, how do I get to be more like this person? You know, uh, and so for those who are, who are thinking like, how do I get to be more like Jasmine? What's your advice? You know what? You do it by doing um, and you learn from your mistakes. I remember ages ago, there was an interview with Sam Walton and the Wall Street Journal. He was still alive at the time. He was one of the richest people in the world. He's the founder of Walmart. We can agree or disagree with Walmart, but you can say he was a huge case of success. And this is how the interview went with him. The interviewer said, so... Uh, how did you make your best decisions? And his answer is through experience. The interviewer says, so how did you gain your experience? And his answer is through bad decisions. We need to learn from ourselves, like be awake at the wheel and learn from ourselves and don't repeat the same mistakes. It's a learning experience. Don't repeat the same mistakes, right? So, so uh, is there a secret weapon there? Like that when you make a mistake, do you have a process for making sure that you, that you don't repeat it? I think we uh, be high on introspection. I think we all rush through life these days, social media and all, like really rushing through it. And sometimes we do not step back to reflect on it uh, enough, which is why I like being on airplanes because I have no place to rush when I'm on an airplane. And it allows you to kind of reflect because it takes the guilt away of, you know, not doing X, Y, and Z. So it's kind of mentally comforting. But just reflect, be honest with yourself, right? We all make mistakes, but if we don't learn from them, how, how else are we going to learn? I mean, in a, it's going to sound strange. My daughter, who's an attorney now, and I'm very proud of her, but I always kind of, there, there are a lot of things that I refuse to help her with as did her dad, though I think he was better at helping her than me. And and then she told me all the things she learned from the times her mother refused to help her because it would kind of expose her to real life and push her to do things that otherwise, as parents, we all want to protect them and do them for do certain things for them, but then aren't we shortchanging them, right? So having them gain that experience is absolutely priceless. I remember reading an incident when uh, JFK Jr. was mugged in Central Park and the Secret Service folks were mortified. They went to Jackie Kennedy and they were expecting her to be irate. Instead, she was delighted to hear that it happened. She was like, oh, he'll experience real life. That's a good thing for him. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you got to fall down to get uh, and, and get back up a few times to realize that if you get knocked down, you can get back up. And, you know, that's, that's, that's who, who, who are the six successful people? It's those who can recover from failure. Um, I remember Charles Handy said that for every nine failures, of, uh, for every success of a successful person, there are at least nine failures, but they do not dwell on it. They just quickly recover. Silicon Valley practices failing fast. 
it's almost a badge of honor, right, to have a few failed startups there uh, because you learn based on that experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jasmine Martirassian, thank you so much for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. Really appreciate it. Next week, Bruce speaks with Jonathan Gold, CEO of the Arbor Group of Summer Camps. Please join us. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.